Chapter 41 of The Trail of the Hawk. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. MikeVendetti.com. Trail of the Hawk by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter 41. The apparently satisfactory development of the Touricar in the late spring of 1914 was the result of an uneconomical expenditure of energy on the part of Carl. Personally, he followed by letter the trail of every amateur aviator, every motoring big-game hunter. He never let up for an afternoon. Van Zale had lost interest in the whole matter. Whenever Carl thought of how much the development of the tour-car business depended upon himself, he was uneasy about the future, and bent more closely over his desk. On his way home, swaying on a subway strap, his pleasant sensation of returning to Ruth was interrupted by worry in regard to things he might have done at the office. Nights he dreamed of lists of prospects. Late in May, he was disturbed for several days by headaches, lassitude, nausea. He lied to Ruth. Guess I have eaten something at lunch that was a little off. You know what these restaurants are. He admitted, however, that he felt like a symptom. He stuck to the office, though his chief emotion about life and business was that he wished to go off somewhere and lie down and die gently. Directly after a Sunday bruncheon, at which he was silent and looked washed out, he went to bed with typhoid fever. For six weeks he was ill. He seemed daily to lose more of the boyishness which all his life had made him want to dance in the sun. That loss was to Ruth like a snickering hobgoblin attending the specter of death. Staying by him constantly, forgetting, in the intensity of her care, even to want credit for virtue, taking one splash at her tired eyes with boric acid and dashing back to his bed. She mourned and mourned for her lost boy. While she hid her fear and kept her blouses fresh and her hair well coiffed and mothered the stern man who lay so dreadfully still in the bed. He was not shaved every day. He had a pale beard under his hollow cheeks. Even when he was out of delirium, even when he was comparatively strong, he never said anything gaily foolish for the sake of being young and noisy with her. During convalescence, Carl was so wearily gentle that she hoped the little boy she loved was coming back to dwell in him. But the hawk's wings seemed broken. For the first time, Carl was afraid of life. He sat and worried, going over the possibilities of the Turricar and the positions he might get if the Turricar failed. He was willing to loaf by the window all day, his eyes on a narrow, blood-red stripe and a Navajo blanket on his knees, along which he incessantly ran a fingernail back and forth, back and forth for whole quarter-hours while she read aloud from Kipling and London and Conrad, hoping to rekindle the spirit of daring. One sweet drop was in their cup of iron. As woodland playmates, they could never have known such intimacy as hovered about them when she rested her head lightly against his knees, and they watched the Hudson, the storms and flurries of light on its waves, the windy clouds and the processions of barges, the beetle-like ferries, and the great steamers for Albany. They talked in half-sentences, understanding the rest. Tough in winter. Might be a good trip. 
Carl's hand was always demanding her thick hair, but he stroked it gently. The coarse, wholesome vigor was drained from him. Part even of his slang went with it. His G was not explosive. He took to watching her like a solemn baby when she moved about the room. Thus she found the little boy Carl again, laughed full-throated, and secretly cried over him. As his sternness passed into a wistful obedience, he was not quite the same impudent boy whose naughtiness she had loved. But the good child who came in his place did trust her so, depended upon her so. When Carl was strong enough, they went for three weeks to Point Pleasant on the Jersey coast, where the pines and breakers from the open sea healed his weakness and his multitudinous worries. They even swam once, and Carl played at learning two new dances, strangely called the Foxtrot and the Lulu Fado. Their hotel was a vast barn, all porches, white flannels, and handsome young Jews chatting tremendously with young Jewesses, but its ballroom floor was smooth and Ruth had lacked music and excitement for so long that she danced every night and conducted an amiable flirtation with a mysterious young man of Harvard accent, Jewish features, fine brown eyes, and tortoiseshell-rimmed eyeglasses, while Carl looked on, a contented wallflower. They came back to town with ocean breeze and pine scent in their throats and sea sparkle in their eyes, and Carl promptly tied himself to the office desk as though sickness and recovery had never given him a vision of play. Ruth had not taken the Point Pleasant dances seriously, but as day on day she stifled in a half-darkened flat that summer, she sometimes sobbed at the thought of the moon-path on the sea, the reflection of lights on the ballroom floor, the wave-like swish of music mad feet. The flat was hot, dead, the summer heat was unrelenting as bedclothes drawn over the head and lashed down. Flies in sneering circles mocked the listless hand she flipped at them. Too hot to wear many clothes, yet hating the disorder of a flimsy negligee, she panted in by a window, while the venomous sun glared on tin roofs, and a few feet away snarled the ceaseless trrrr of a steam riveter that was creating new flats to shut off her view of the Hudson. In the lava-paved backyard was the insistent, file-like voice of the janitor's son, who kept piping, Hey, Billy! Hey, Billy! He's got a girl! Billy got a girl! Hey, Billy! She imagined herself going down and slaughtering him, vividly saw herself waiting for the elevator, venturing into the hot sepulchre of the back areaway, and there becoming too languid to complete the task of ridding the world of the dear child. She was horrified to discover what she had been imagining, and presently imagined it all over again. Two blocks across from her, seen through the rising walls of the new apartment houses, were the drab windows of a group of run-down tenements, which broke the sleek respectability of the well-to-do quarter. In those windows Ruth observed foreign-looking idle women, not very clean, who had nothing to do after they had completed half an hour of slovenly housework in the morning. They watched their neighbors breathlessly. They peered out with the petty, virulent curiosity of the workless at whatever passed in the streets below them. Fifty times a day they could be seen to lean far out on their fire escapes and follow with slowly craning necks and unblinking eyes the passing of something, 
ice wagons, undertaker's wagons, ole men. Ruth surmised. The rest of the time, ragged hair and greasy of wrapper, gum-chewing and yawning, they rested their unlovely stomachs on discolored sofa cushions on the window-sills and waited for something to appear. Two blocks away they were. Yet to Ruth they seemed to be in the room with her, claiming her as one of their sisterhood. For now she was a useless woman, as they were. She raged with the thought that she might grow to be like them in every respect. She, Ruth Winslow. She wondered if any of them were Norwegians named Ericsson. With the fascination of dread, she watched them as closely as they watched the world, with the hypnotization of unspeakable hopelessness. She had to find her work, something for which the world needed her, lest she be left here, useless and unhappy in a flat. In her kitchen she was merely an intruder on the efficient maid, and there was no nursery. She sat apprehensively on the edge of a chair, hating the women at the windows, hating the dull, persistent flies, hating the wetness of her forehead and the dampness of her palm, repenting of her hate, and hating again, and taking another cold bath, to be fresh for the homecoming of Carl, the tired man whom she had to mother, and whom, of all the world, she did not hate. Even on the many cool days, when the streets in the flat became tolerable, and the vulture-women of the tenements ceased to exist for her, Ruth was not much interested, whether she went out or someone came to see her. Everyone she knew, except the Dunleavies, and a few others, was out of town, and she was tired of all of Dunleavy's mirth and shallow gossip. After her days with Carl in the Valley of the Shadow, Olive was to her a stranger, giggling about strange people. Phil was rather better. He occasionally came in for tea, poked about, stared at the color prints, and said cryptic things about feminism and playing squash. Her settlement house classes were closed for the summer. She brooded over the settlement work and accused herself of caring less for people than for the sensation of being charitable. She wondered if she was a hypocrite. Then she would take another cold bath to be fresh for the homecoming of Carl, the tired man whom she had to mother and toward whom, of all the world's energies, she knew that she was not hypocritical. This is not the story of Ruth Winslow, but of Carl Erickson. Yet Ruth's stifling days are a part of it, for her unhappiness meant as much to him as it did to her. In the swelter of his office, overlooking, motor-hooting, gasoline-reeking Broadway, he was aware that Ruth was in the flat, buried alive. He made plans for her going away, but she refused to desert him. He tried to arrange for a week more of holiday for them both. He could not. He came to understand that he was now completely a prisoner of business. He was in a rut, both sides of which were hedged with back work that had piled up on him. He had no desire, no ambition, no interest, except in Ruth, and in making the Touricar pay. The Touricar company had never paid expenses as yet. How much longer would old Van Zale be satisfied with millions to come in the future? Perhaps. Carl even took work home with him. Though for Ruth's sake he wanted to go out and play, it really was for her sake 
He himself liked to play, but the disease of perpetual overwork had hold on him. He was glad to have her desert him for an evening now and then, and go out to the Peace Waters Country Club for a dance with Phil and Olive Dunlavey. She felt guilty when she came home and found him still making calculations, but she hummed waltzes while she put on a thin blue silk dressing-gown and took down her hair. "'I can't stand this grubby shut-in prison!' she finally snatched at him on an evening when he would not go to the first night of a roof-garden. He snarled back. "'You don't have to. Why don't you go with your bloomin' Phil and Olive? Of course, I don't ever want to go myself. See here, my friend, you have been taking advantage for a long time now of the fact that you were ill. I'm not going to be your nurse indefinitely. She slammed her bedroom door. Later she came stalking out, very dignified, and left the flat. He pretended not to see her. But as, as soon as the elevator door clanged and the rumbling old car had begun to carry her down away from him, the flat was noisy with her absence. She came home eagerly sorry, to find an eagerly sorry Carl. Then, while they cried together and he kissed her lips, they made a compact that no matter for what reason or through whose fault they might quarrel, they would always settle it before either went to bed. But they were uncomfortably polite for two days, and obviously were so afraid that they might quarrel that they were both prepared to quarrel. Carl had been back at work for less than one month but he hoped the Turricar was giving enough promise now of positive success to permit him to play during the evening. He rented a Vinzale car for part-time, planned weekend trips, hoped they could spend. Then the whole world exploded. Just at the time when the investigation of twilight sleep indicated that the world might become civilized, the powers plunged into a war whose reason no man has yet discovered. Carl read the headlines on the morning of August 5, 1914, with the delusion of not reading news, but history, with himself in the history book. Ten thousand books record the Great War, and how bitterly Europe realized it. This is to record that Carl, like most Americans, did not comprehend it. Even when recruits for the Kaiser marched down Broadway with German and American flags intertwined, even when his business was threatened, it was too big for his imagination. Every noon he bought himself half a dozen newspaper extras and hurried down to the bulletin boards on the Times and Herald buildings. He pretended that he was a character in one of the fantastic novels about a world war, when he saw such items as Russians invading Prussia, Japs will enter war, airplane and submarine attacks, English cruiser. Rats, he said, I'm dreaming. There couldn't be a war like that. We're too civilized. I can prove the whole thing's impossible. In the world puzzle, nothing confused Carl more than the question of socialism. He had known as a final fact that the alliance of French and German socialist workmen made war between the two nations absolutely impossible, and his knowledge was proven ignorance, his faith folly. He tentatively bought a socialist magazine or two to find some explanation, and found only greater confusion on the part of the scholars and leaders of the party. They, too, did not understand how it had all happened. They stood amid the ruins of international socialism, sorrowing. If their faith was darkened, how much more so was Carl's vague, untutored optimism about world brotherhood. 
He had two courses, to discard socialism as a failure, or to stand by it as a course of action which was logical, but had not as yet been able to accomplish its end. He decided to stand by it. He could not see himself plunging into the unutterable pessimism of believing that all of mankind were such beastly fools that, after this one great sin, they could not repent and turn from tribal murder. And what other remedy was there? If socialism had not prevented the war, neither had monarchy or bureaucracy, bourgeois peace movements, nor the church. With the whole world at war, Carl thought chiefly of his own business. He was not abnormal. The press was filled with bewildered queries as to what would happen to America. For two weeks the automobile business seemed dead, save for a grim activity in war trucks. Van Zyl called in Carl and shook his head over the future of the Touricar, now that all luxuries were threatened. But the Middle West promised a huge crop and prosperity. The East followed, then slowly the South despite the closed outlet for its cotton crop. Within a few weeks, all sorts of motor-cars were selling well, especially expensive cars. It was apparent that automobiles were no longer merely luxuries. There was even a promise of greater trade than ever. So rapidly were all the cars of war-warring nations being destroyed. But once Van Zyl had considered the possibility of letting go his Touricar interest in order to be safe, he seemed always to be considering it. Carl read fate in Van Zale's abstract manner, and if Van Zale withdrew, Carl's own stock would be worthless. But he stuck to his work with something of a boy's frightened stubbornness and something of a man's quiet sternness. Fear was never far from him. In an airplane he had never been greatly frightened. He could himself, by his own efforts, fight the wind. But how could he steer a world war or a world industry? He tried to conceal his anxiety from Ruth, but she guessed it. She said one evening, "'Sometimes I think we two are unusual because we really want to be free, and then a thing like this war comes in our bread and butter, and little pink cakes are in danger, and I realize we're not free at all, and we're just like the rest, prisoners, dependent on how much the job brings and how fast the subway runs.' Oh, sweetheart, we mustn't forget to be just mad, no matter how serious things become. Standing very close to him, she put her head on his shoulder. Sure mustn't. Must stick by each other all the more when the world takes a run and jumps on us. Indeed we will. Unsparingly, the war's cosmic idiocy continued, and Carl crawled along the edge of a business precipice looking down. He became so accustomed to it that he began to enjoy the view. The old Carl, with the enthusiasm which had served him for that undefined quality called courage, began to come to life again, laughing. Let the darned old business bust if she's going to. Only it refused to bust. It kept on trembling while Carl became nervous again, then gaily defiant, then nervous again, till the alternation of groom and bravado disgusted him and made Ruth wonder whether he was an office slave or a freebooter, as he happened to be both at the time. It was hard for him to be either convincingly. She accused him of vacillating. He retorted, the suspense kept them both raw. To add to their difficulties of adjustment to each other and to the ego-mad world, 
Ruth's sense of established amenities was shocked by the appearance of Carl's pioneering past as revealed in the lively but vulgar person of Martin Dockerill, Carl's former aviation mechanic. Martin Dockerill was lanky and awkward as ever. He still wrote postcards to his aunt in Fall River and admired burlesque show choruses, but he no longer played the mouth-organ publicly, for he had become so well-to-do as to be respectable, as for an agent for the Des Moines Auto Truck Company. He had toured Europe, selling war trucks, or lorries, as the English called them, first to the Balkan states, then to Italy, Russia, and Turkey. He was for a time detailed to the New York office. It did not occur either to him or to Carl that he was not welcome to drop in any time often as possible, to slap Carl on the back, loudly recollect the time when he had got drunk and fought with policemen from San Antonio, or to spend a whole evening belligerently discussing the idea of war or types of motor-trucks when Ruth wistfully wanted Carl to herself. Martin supposed, because she smiled, that she was interested as Carl in his theories about airplane scouting and war. Ruth knew that most of Carl's life had been devoted to things quite outside her own sphere of action, but she had known it without feeling it. His talk with Martin showed her how sufficient his life had been without her. She began to worry lest he go back to aviation. So began their serious quarrels. There were not many of them, and they were forgotten out of existence in a day or two, but there were at least three pitched battles during which both of them believed that this ended everything. They quarreled always about the same thing which had intimidated them before. The need of quarreling through apropos of this every detail of life came up. Ruth's conformities, her fear that he would fly again, her fear that the wavering job was making him indecisive. And Martin Dockerell kept coming, as an excellent starting point for discussion. Ruth did not dislike Martin's roughness. But when the ex-mechanic discovered that he was making more money than was Carl, and asked Carl, in her presence, if he'd like a loan, then she hated Martin, and would give no reason. She became unable to see him as anything but a bore, an unpleasant service, whose friendship with Carl indicated that her husband, too, was an outsider. Believing that she was superbly holding herself in, she asked Carl if there was not some way of tactfully suggesting to Martin that he come to the flat only once in two weeks instead of two or three times a week. Carl was angry. She said furiously what she really thought and retired to Aunt Emma's for the evening. When she returned, she expected to find Carl as repentant as herself. Unfortunately, that same Carl who had declared that it was pure egotism to regard one's own religion or country as necessarily sacred, regarded his own friends as sacred, a noble faith which is an important cause of political graft. He was ramping about the living room, waiting for a fight. And he got it. The moment of indiscretion, the inevitable time when, believing themselves fearlessly frank, they exchanged every memory of an injury. Ruth pointed out that Carl had disliked Florence Cruden as much as she disliked Martin. She renewed her accusation that he was vacillating, scoffed at Walter McManus, whom she really liked, Gertie Cowles, whom she had never met, and even hesitantly, Carl's farmer relatives. And Carl was equally unpleasant. At her last thrust, he called her a thin-blooded New Yorker and slammed his bedroom door. 
They had broken their pledge not to go to bed on a quarrel. He was gone before she came out to breakfast in the morning. In the evening they were perilously polite again. Martin Dockerell appeared, and, while Ruth listened, Carl revealed how savagely his mind had turned overnight to a longing for such raw adventuring as she could never share. He feverishly confessed that he had for many weeks wavered between hating the whole war and wanting to enlist in the British Air Corps, to get life's supreme sensation, scouting ten thousand feet in the air, while dozens of batteries fired at him, a nose-to-earth volaplane. The thinking Carl, the playmate Carl that Ruth knew, was masked as the foolhardy adventurer, and as one who not merely talking, but might really do the thing he pictured, and Martin Dockerell seemed so dreadfully to take it for granted that Carl might go. Carl's high note of madness dropped to a matter-of-fact chatter about a kind of wandering, which shut her out as completely as a project of war. "'I don't know,' said he, "'but what the biggest fun in chasing around the country is to get up from a pile of lumber where you've pounded your ear all night and get that funny railroad smell of greasy waste, and then throw your feet for a hand out and sneak on a blind and go hiking off to some town you've never heard of, with every brakey and constable out there after you. That's living. When Martin was gone, Carl glanced at her. She stiffened and pretended to be absorbed in a magazine. He took from the mess of papers and letters that lived in his inside coat pocket a war map he had clipped from a newspaper, and drew tactical lines on it. From his room he brought a small book he had bought that day. He studied it intently. Ruth managed to see that the title of the book was Airplane and Air Scouting in the European Armies. She sprang up and cried, Hawk, why are you reading that? Why shouldn't I read it? You don't mean to, you? Oh, no, I don't suppose I have the nerve to go and enlist now. You've already pointed that out to me. I've been getting cold feet. But why do you shut me out? Why do you? Oh, good Lord! Have we got to go all over this again? We've gone over it, and over it, and over it, till I'm sick of telling you it isn't true. I'm very sorry, Hawk. Thank you for making it clear to me that I'm a typical silly wife. And thank you for showing me I'm a clumsy brute. You've done it quite often now. Of course, it doesn't mean anything that I've given up aviation. Oh, don't be melodramatic. Or, if you must, don't fail to tell me that I've ruined your life. Very well. I won't say anything then, Ruth. Don't look at me like that, Hark. So hard studying me. Can't you understand? Haven't you any perception? Can't you understand how hard it is for me to come to you like this? After last night and try? Very nice of you, he said grimly. With one cry of, Oh! She ran into her bedroom. He could hear her sobbing. He could feel her agony dragging him to her. But no woman's arms could drag his anger this time to let it ache again. For once he definitely did not want to go to her, so futile to make up and quarrel, make up and quarrel. He was impatient about their distant sobs, expressed so clearly a wordless demand that he come to her and make peace. Hell! He 
croaked, jerked his topcoat from its nail, and left the flat. Eleven o'clock of a chilly November evening. End of chapter 41